found in the book of Acts. We'll be looking at Acts chapter 11. The whole chapter. Acts 11. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me, looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send a Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also... God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. And so the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Please pray with me this evening. 
look at God's word. Father, you do all things well. Though at times we feel like Job and we don't have any answers for why you allow things to happen the way that they do. Why you bring growth the way that you do. Why you allow pain, suffering for your children and yet the wicked often seem to get away with great evil. But we don't understand why it takes years often to see a fruitful harvest. Lord, we, we, we are not God. We don't understand all of your workings, but we know this, that you are good. And we pray that you would remind us of your goodness, even help us to see it here, that each, each saint in this room would be sustained, they'd be strengthened, they'd be encouraged, they'd be prepared to endure the trials the temptations that they will face this week. Lord, would we just saying, speak, O Lord, and let your promises hold us fast, that we, would, that we would live for you and for your glory. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word this morning. Give me words to say, to, bring, to make your truth clear, so that we might receive all the assistance we need for our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, people use various metrics to measure progress. Uh, athletes uh, will look at their statistics or uh, their timing, faster times. Businesses will look at the bottom line, uh, increased income, to measure their growth. But how does one measure the church's progress? How do we adequately measure gospel advancement in the world? People have suggested uh, numerical growth, growing in numbers or increased giving, uh, the, the spiritual growth of the believers, how many people, uh, believer, uh, unbelievers are reached with the gospel, do, do the members have a mutual care and love for one another? An, an increased number of leaders? Remarkably, all of those measurements of growth for a church's growth are actually seen in this chapter in the early church. And I think all of those things are valid expressions of growth. Uh, the chapter could be broken up into really three distinct parts or movements. It begins with the Jerusalem church growing by embracing the Gentiles. And then uh, the scene shifts to Antioch where there's a Gentile church essentially that's established. And the church grows amongst the Gentiles there. And then the Antioch church resolves to support the church in Jerusalem that had sent them Barnabas. So that's, that's really the movement, and we'll look at these in depth. So let's look first of all at the, at the Jerusalem church growing by embracing the Gentiles. Now most of what's covered in verses 1 through 18 really is just a review of what we had previously seen in uh, chapter 10. And biblical narratives will typically repeat themselves in order to emphasize a point. 
Uh, often, if, 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 they, if they make a point, then they make, there's a story, or then they, there's another story, and then there's a story after that. Often what's in the middle is what is, is being emphasized. And in this section, what is emphasized, of course, is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on Gentile believers. And that's really the whole point of chapters 9 through 11. And I did, we just can't emphasize that enough on how shocking this is. I mean, something that we take for granted, having lived 2,000 years after the Holy Spirit was poured out upon Gentiles, was something that would have been totally uh, paradigm-shifting, shocking to the Jews. That, that, that we could be blessed with the indwelling of God Himself, just as the Jews had the presence of God in the tabernacle. But at the time, again, this would have been just shocking. Which is why the, the Christians in Jerusalem show, show so much concern when they hear that, that Peter had actually eaten, eaten with uh, the Gentiles. To tell a first century Jew that Gentiles could be indwelt by the Holy Spirit really would be like telling someone today that smoking is actually good for your health. You'd be like saying the, 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 the ground is up and the sky is down. I mean, their world, their paradigm for thinking had totally been flipped on its head. And so when the Jerusalem Christians hear that Peter ate with Gentiles, they're reasonably concerned. I mean, just to kind of put this into context, it would be like hearing that your teenage son, who had been out all night, was out all night because he was in a brothel. Now, it turns out he was in the brothel because he was preaching to people that they might repent and be saved. But if you had heard that, that's what he decided to do, you would have serious concerns. Not because his heart was in the wrong place, but that's not the place you want your teenage son to be doing ministry. Other people can go there. And this is why the Jerusalem Christians are like, Peter, what are you doing? Eating with Gentiles. Look at verse 2. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? And Peter explains, Hey guys, that's not what you think. He then relays basically the whole account that we saw last week in chapter 10. And really the only difference in the accounts is in chapter 11, we get a little more information about what the angel said to Cornelius when he told him to seek out Peter. In chapter 10, when Peter asked why Cornelius had summoned him, Cornelius simply said that he was told by the angel that Peter had a message for him. But in chapter 11, verse 14, Peter says that the angel had actually told Cornelius that Peter would declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. This explains why Cornelius was desperate to have Peter come and why he invited his whole household to join him. This is the news that he was longing for. Peter continues in verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is I to stand in the way? So in short, Peter's explanation is, you asked me why I ate with Gentiles? Well, it's because God told me to. 
And God did this in order to show that those Gentiles had already been made holy through Christ's sacrifice. They were no longer unclean. And after this explanation, the Jewish Christians understand. Right? Which is why it says, when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. What a a way of describing salvation. In fact, if you look at the text, notice how uh, this section, verses 1 through 18, is actually bookended by two statements that explain what it means to be saved. In verse 1 it says, The Gentiles had received the word of God. A way of describing salvation. But then in verse 18 it says, God has granted repentance that leads to life. There are really two different ways of saying the same thing. They were saved. These Gentiles have been born again. They had been uh, brought from death into life. They were believers. And notice how the verbiage here speaks both of the willful act. They, they volitionally chose to accept or receive that truth, verse 1. And in verse 18, it speaks to the sovereign grace of God giving them repentance that leads to life. One is emphasizing their choice to believe. The other is emphasizing God's gift to them so that they might believe. And so according to this passage, who chose who? Did the Gentiles choose to follow Christ? Or did Christ choose to save these Gentiles? It's not a trick question. The, the answer is both. Both are true. God gave them the desire to reprint so that they might have life, which is why they then received the word of God that gives such life when they heard it. As it says in James 1.18, of his own will, speaking of God, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now there was no visible demonstration of God giving them this repentance. It was an unseen spiritual work in their hearts and in their minds, in their inner man. And so if you were at this moment to ask the Gentiles that were here, how, how did you get saved? And they would say, we heard the message that Peter brought and we believed it. And then we were baptized. Because they didn't seal, see or feel God give them this gift of repentance. It was suprasensory. It was a spiritual work. But it was because God had chosen to grant them this repentance that leads to life that they did choose to receive the word of God. As we read earlier in John 1 verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They were born not by their own wills, but by God's will. God's will gave them new life, and therefore they willfully chose to follow and embrace Christ. Both are true. So verses 1 through 18 show that the Gentiles are genuinely saved, just like the Jewish Christians were genuinely saved. 
And therefore, the gospel is now advancing not just amongst the church in Jerusalem and in Samaria, but it's advancing as well into even other Gentile territories. And now the Gentiles are seen as fellow members of the body of Christ. And it's a, it's a, it's a moment of tremendous glory in God's great plan of redemption. As Paul explains in Ephesians 2, that those who were once alienated, without God, without hope in the world, strangers, separated from God, He has now brought near. They are now fellow citizens with the saints. I mean, it's an amazing reality. And it all started here in Acts chapter 10 and 11. And so again, the main point of this first part of in chapter 11 is that the church has taken a massive step in recognizing the gospel is not just for the Jews. It's for the Gentiles also. They're as clean as any Jew was considered clean. Which brings us now to the, the church growing amongst the Gentiles in verses 19 through 26. It says in verse 19, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, which is about 300 miles away uh, from Jerusalem, north of Jerusalem. It says that they were speaking to the, the word to no one except Jews. Now, again, verse 19 tells us that the reason for the gospel's advance through these areas was actually the same reason for the gospel's advance into Samaria. Back in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. If you look back there, it says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. And then here in 11.19, it says this is the same persecution that led people to advance the gospel into Antioch. So, so again, this tells us that we've gone back in time a bit from chapter 10. The spread of the gospel northward is parallel to Philip's work of gospel advance in, in Samaria, like when he uh, brought the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. And this explains why in verse 19 that it says those scattered believers only spread the good news amongst the Jews. Because the events of chapter 10 hadn't been revealed yet. The Holy Spirit hadn't come upon Gentiles yet. But it does say in verse 20, notice, that there were some men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, in coming to Antioch, out of their own free will and desire, began to share the gospel with the Hellenists, that is, the Greeks, the non-Jews. And notice again in verse 21, it says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So you have Gentiles coming to know the Lord even before Acts chapter 10. God's at work spreading the gospel amongst them in the city of Antioch. And apparently the, the, the majority of the church members in Antioch were Greeks. They were Gentiles. So you have this massive Jewish church in Jerusalem, but you also have this massive church 300 miles northward in Antioch made up of primarily Greeks. And verse 22 probably then occurs after Peter's message about the Gentiles receiving the Holy Spirit we saw earlier in this chapter because we see the church in Jerusalem rather than being concerned that uh, there was a, a church full of Gentiles 
they actually send one of their best men to go there to be their pastor. They're excited about hearing the work of the Lord. And so they send him Barnabas. Now again, Barnabas was that, was that great man of God who we saw earlier in Acts, who out of just his own free will uh, sold some, some uh, expensive land and then gave the proceeds to the church, which inspired a number of other people to begin giving. And all the needs of the church were provided for because of just his, his example in giving generously. And it was also Barnabas who had the, the courage to embrace the apostle, well, not the apostle yet, but embrace Saul when, when all the other apostles were terrified. They didn't want to have anything to do with him. Barnabas went to him and brought him to the apostles so that he could share about the, the grace of God in his own life. And Saul remained in Jerusalem as a teacher there until he had to be sent away to Tarsus because now the apostles feared for his life. They once feared that he would take their life, now they're afraid that his life would be taken. It's an amazing work of God. But that started with Barnabas. I mean, the importance of Barnabas in this church cannot be overstated. And they send him away to Antioch. And the text goes out of its way to, to emphasize a number of other remarkable things about Barnabas. First of all, it says that what brought him joy was seeing the grace of God in people's lives. Right? The, the word translated glad here, he saw the grace of God and was glad. It, it doesn't just simply mean having a smile on his face. It is a strong word. I mean, it, it caused him exuberant joy, enthusiastic joy. He rejoiced in seeing the grace of God in their lives, just like a football fan might rejoice when their team is down and, they, and they, there's a touchdown that's scored by their team and they win the game. They're, they rejoice because of what happened. Or how we might uh, rejoice when a, when a, or be glad when, when a movie or book that we've been waiting to, to, to come out finally comes out and we can read the book. Or when grandparents find out that their grandkids are coming over for a visit. I mean, think about it. What is it, what is it that causes you to rejoice, to be glad? And for Barnabas, it was seeing the grace of God at work in people's lives. That's what thrilled him. Secondly, he ministered to people from the inside out. And what do I mean by that? Well, notice verse 24. It says, He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Verse 24. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. The key word here is for. Right? He exhorted them to remain faithful because he likewise wanted to be faithful. And that, that word exhorted, you're familiar with, I believe, parakaleo, means to come alongside, to encourage, to challenge them to improve. Right? Think of a coach or, a, or a, a captain, a good captain on a team. They, they both encourage you, but they also won't settle for substandard effort. They're going to push you to be everything that you can be, to be the best. That's what Barnabas did. Right? He, he didn't look down upon these Christians. He didn't kick them from behind. But he co-labored with them. He came alongside them. And he exhorted them to remain faithful to Christ and to press on, to keep growing, to, to keep steadfast in their purpose, to live for Him and for God's glory. And it says he did this because he was a good man. 
Again, a, a, a simple word in English, but profound in its meaning. It doesn't mean he was just okay. He was a decent fella. Good actually here means he was exemplary. You might recall when the rich young ruler came to Christ, he said he called him good. And Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. Same word he used here. And the Holy Spirit, not because not he's in an argument with Jesus about meaning of goodness. Jesus had a different point. But the Holy Spirit here says Barnabas was a good man. Holy Spirit says Barnabas was good. It's high commendation. Romans 5, 7 says that a good man is the kind of person you might lay down your life for. Right? For, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Peter says that, that a good master is the kind of person that you're eager to obey, even though you're a slave. He says, slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Say, Barnabas was this kind of man. You wanted to serve this guy. He was also full of the Holy Spirit, meaning that, that the Spirit controlled his speech, his actions, his thoughts. He wasn't ruled by the flesh. He walked in the Spirit. Right? Galatians 5. You don't want to carry out the deeds of the flesh and it, in, in order to, to not carry out the deeds of the flesh, walk in the Spirit. And you will produce the fruit of the Spirit with love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what characterized Barnabas' life. Ephesians 5.18, Paul says that those who are filled with the Spirit address one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, and they give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That, that's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Barnabas was a man who was full of the Spirit. He was also full of faith. He was a man defined by his trust in the Lord. He was like the other great examples that we see in Scripture. Like those that are listed in Hebrews 11 in the hall of faith, as it's called, whose lives were defined by confident trust in God and His promises. They were willing to take risks. In hope, against hope, they believed and gave glory to God. And my mind also thinks of, of George Mueller as a man who was full of faith. Some of you know, he, he prayed in millions of dollars to support his uh, orphan ministry, over 2,000 orphans he cared for, and he never asked anyone directly for money. And he never even took a salary the last 68 years of his ministry. But he always trusted in God that God would provide by working in people's hearts to want to give. He never took out a loan, he never went into debt, and, and it's also true that he nor his orphans ever went hungry. Trusted God to provide. And God provided. And, and my point is, Mueller didn't simply pray and then seek God to answer prayer. He put himself at risk. And not just himself, but thousands of orphans at risk. Because he was confident that God, if God didn't provide, they would starve. And he knew God wouldn't let him starve. 
And God did provide for them for 68 years. As his friend William Carey once said, expect great things for God and then attempt great things for God. Expect. And based upon that confident expectation, live in light of it. Show that you really believe. We're good at Americans about talking about our faith and confidence in God. And then when a gentle breeze comes through, we fall on our face. And we wallow in self-pity and wonder, what in the world happened? Barnabas was a man of faith. He fully believed it was the Lord's will and God would provide everything he needed. Right? That's why he gave of all this land and inspired others to give. And because he was of such a man, of such remarkable character, who ministered from the inside out, God, it says, blessed his ministry. Verse 6. And a great many people were added to the Lord. He was also a man who had a vision that went beyond himself. And I say that because as his ministry grew, he realized he needed help. And he recognized the need to bring in another teacher to help bear the load of ministry. And and the man that he chooses to recruit to help him is arguably the greatest Christian in all of history. The greatest teacher. The greatest theologian. He asked the apostle, who becomes the apostle Paul, he asked Saul of Tarsus to come join him in ministry. Clearly, having no ego, he was okay having his ministry dwarfed by the immeasurable greatness of Saul. I mean, again, just to wrap your mind around this, this would be like a backup quarterback in the NFL recruiting uh, a number one draft pick. To take his place. Because he so recognizes that 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 quarterback could actually take this team to the NFL and he couldn't. And he's willing to take a back seat to lose his job. Because he so cares for his team. That was Barnabas. He wasn't in ministry to make a name for himself. He just cared for the people. And he wanted them to get the spiritual nourishment they needed for growth. And again, I think God blessed it. As He wanted to see these people grow in their love and understanding of Christ, these Christians did. Because it's here in Antioch where Christians are first called Christians. That is, followers of Christ. People recognize these are people that are trying to follow Christ. And the impact of Barnabas' ministry is further seen in the third section of this narrative. We get to verse 27. It says, Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined every one, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And I've I, I mentioned before, multiple times before, Barnabas was an incredibly generous person. And his, his enthusiasm to give not only impacted the church in Jerusalem, but it impacted the church of Antioch as well. 
as we see here. And the circumstances provoke this interest, again, surround a prophecy that was declared by a man named Agabus. Right? And ancient historians such as Tacitus and Suetonius and Eusebius all confirm that such a famine actually did take place in the year AD 46. And notice, though, Agabus didn't say in verse 28 that the famine would just hit Jerusalem. He said that the famine was coming upon the whole world. Now, if you knew that a famine was about to hit North America, what would you do? I think most of us would start stocking up on canned goods and buy all the toilet paper we can. You know, for the church, of course. And this is kind of what the Church of Antioch does, except not for themselves. The famine's coming on the whole world, but they resolve in their hearts to store up for the saints in Judea. It's astounding selflessness. What I say, it's exemplary Christianity. As Paul exhorted in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but with humility consider others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We have no indication they even look to their own interests. But they're like, we have got to store up for our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Right, notice verse 29. The disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers in Judea. Each person in the church resolved that they're going to give according to their ability. So again, it's not, it's not like the church leaders stood up and said, hey, we're going to make this a requirement. Each of you needs to give at least 10%. This was free will giving. They wanted to do this and according to their own need. Whatever they could supply. Nobody was telling them to do this. And despite the exemplary nature of their generosity, though, there's actually a much greater point being made in verses 27 and 30 than to just, than just emphasize how, how kind they were. Again, remember the major context of this passage is that God has poured out His Holy Spirit upon the Gentiles. And it began with the Jews' reasonable reluctance to accept the Gentiles as fellow members of the body of Christ. But on account of Peter's revelation, they did. So much so that they gave of their best. The church in Jerusalem said, these, these, Jew, these Gentile Christians, they need a good pastor. Let's send them one of our best. And they send Barnabas, who's stellar. And now, this Gentile church is resolved to, receive, to return the love that the Jerusalem church had gave to them by sending in Barnabas. It proves the principle of Proverbs 11.25. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. The church in Jerusalem watered Antioch, and Antioch in joy, put Jerusalem before themselves in a time of blessing. I mean, sorry, a time of famine. But a blessing, I would say as well.
Early in the message, I mentioned George Mueller's exemplary faith and how God had provided for him abundantly, and he never asked directly for money from anyone. And despite living under constant dependency, what I didn't mention is that Mueller gave extravagantly from what he received. During the first ten years of his ministry, from 1836 to 1845, his yearly income from all sources was approximately 340 pounds. And through faith, he placed back into the Lord's work about 128 pounds of that. 38% of what he gave. During the next decade, his yearly income was about 500 pounds. And for the same time, he gave over half of this sum away. 50% of it. The third decade, his income amounted to approximately 1,000 pounds a year. And of this, he devoted 77% of it back to the Lord's work. The fourth decade, his income doubled to about 2,500 pounds, and he gave to the Lord 88% of it. And during the next 10 years, which is the last that we have any record of, he gave away of the 2,330 pounds that he received annually, he gave away 2,600 pounds, which left him the sum of 367 pounds to live on for a year. He gave, at the end of his life, he was giving 90% of his personal income back to the church or the Lord's work in other areas. Mueller, along with the, the Church of Jerusalem and Antioch, again, they prove the principle that Jesus taught in Luke chapter 6. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And the reason God calls us to give this way is because that's what shows that He is our treasure. Right? We know that we're called to live for the glory of God. Right? What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Right? To show that God is more precious than anything we're called to live like He is so that we'll be willing to give anything for His sake. When people see that, they say, that is a God worth worshiping. Because He's not only a God who satisfies, He's a God that meets all of our needs. And that's what the Lord wants from each one of us. He wants us to trust Him. But trust Him in such a way that we live like we trust Him. In every area of our life, let's pray for God's grace that he would make us to be such a church. Father, we don't want to simply study passages like this. We want to be transformed by him. We want to be people like Barnabas, who are selfless and humble, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, generous, sacrificial, kind, encouraging. So I pray that you would Help us, Spirit, work in us, transform us. Pour out your grace upon our hearts that we might better worship you. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.